Our talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk. We're getting up late Monday because, you know, the game wasn't that long ago. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, and Stephen Means. We are all... All right, Stephen, are you out of Georgia or are you still in Georgia? No, I'm about 20 minutes outside of Atlanta. I will be home uh, Tuesday night. Okay. I'm in Ohio. Nathan is in an undisclosed uh, Midwestern location. But we are no longer on the scene covering this game in Atlanta. It, it It's not that long ago. I mean, like I said, we were going to bed at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, Sunday morning, and now we're doing this Monday afternoon. So, like, we don't – I have not rewatched the game. You know, I drove 10 hours back to Ohio on Sunday. So um, we have things that are happening, and that's what we're going to talk about. We have a great survey from tech subscribers about vibe of the game. But if you're looking to dig in on, like, what happened on third and seven in the second quarter, we don't have that today. But we will. The plan is for us to do a rewatch and a pod about the Ohio State defense from the Peach Bowl and another one about the Ohio State offense from the Peach Bowl. And we will do two separate podcasts on that later in the week. So if you're if you're wanting like a final full analysis of play by play, what happened, what went right, what went wrong, we do want to give that to you. We just aren't ready to do it right now. And I think we will have a rant pod later this week as well. But for now, there's a couple things, Nathan, you can get to this point of the year. I just watched, was watching the, the Illinois Bowl game. Um, the Penn State Rose Bowl is going to kick off in about an hour and a half as we're recording this on Monday afternoon. There's still stuff happening. There's like portal stuff happening with people. There's um, sort of like NFL draft stuff that some people are moving on to. There's, there's, a, there's a thing that happened with Ryan Day that we're going to talk about on this pod. It's like, oh, Ohio State season is over, but it's a, it can feel like a fire hose of like nugget, nugget. Like it, it's not game changing. The, the face of college football has not shifted, but there's a lot of little things happening. And so people know this. This is not a news breakdown podcast. We might not hit every little nugget that you've heard, but there's some stuff popping here, Nathan. Yeah, uh, just little things here and there. Mason Arnold went in the transfer portal. Cleveland's own Lloyd McFarquhar is in the transfer portal. So it's been some some minor Again, steps. He was in the transfer portal last offseason, too. Yes, correct, and came back and, and played one game. Um, so some minor things have happened, but obviously some bigger news is coming as far as especially NFL draft declarations and maybe transfer portal things. I have really pinpointed January 18th as a, a – a, or maybe the 19th as like a very slumbery day because I think that's – I think 18th is a day that the portal closes it's 10 days after the championship game, 18th or 19th. So I may, I may sleep a lot that day, but until then it's going to keep coming. So get the text 614-350-3315. It's a good, this two week free trial will take you almost through that. Okay. So there's two things that I do want to talk about off the top. Then we'll take a break. And there's one thing then that I want to talk about that would possibly be one of the weirder things that I have seen in my time covering football, if it somehow would happen. And then we'll get to the text survey at the end. But let's start with the fake punt that wasn't for Ohio State in the Peach Bowl, because there's been some discussion about this post game. And I know that, you know, we did talk to, when we did the post game pod, we, you know, you guys had been in the locker room, we did gather some things, but there's been more discussion about that. And Kirby Smart's been out talking about it. There's a couple things happening here. So, Stephen, let's start with this. The idea of 
Georgia sniffed. So the, the deal was Ohio State had a fake punt lined up. It looked like basically the same fake punt that they called but did not successfully attempt against Michigan because the, the indication did not get to the long snapper. Looked certainly from the outside like a similar style of play. And Kirby Smart called a timeout before it happened. And Steven, it's because he kind of saw it and it, what did he say? Like it looked like a fake formation? When I saw the formation, it was a fake formation. That's what he told Pat McCaffrey at college game day when they asked him about it this morning. Okay. So that idea, I think people liked the idea that Ohio State was trying that. But, Stephen, there's a little bit of, I don't know, like, if it looks like a fake and it's a fake, is it really a fake? Right? Yeah. You know it would be good? A fake that looks yeah. like a fake. and then it's Actually, that's what they ran last time. Last time against Michigan, it was like, you know what? It looked like a fake because it was a fake, but then they punted it. It's almost like the reverse. Mm-hmm. It's not a fake punt. It's a it's a fake fake. But I don't know. There's I think people liked the idea of it in the moment, Stephen, people being the people who listen to this podcast, Ohio State fans. But it feels like if if a coach can see that, then it's falling down a little bit in execution, is it not? Well, um, there's also this idea that maybe there were 12 guys on the field. So that's, how did, that's the other part did, of it, yeah. No, okay. I I the first that, part yeah. of the, I, th- I think if I haven't gone back and completely watched the game, but I did watch that punt. It didn't seem like they were trying to hide it. It seemed like they were trying to get it off quickly because they knew if Georgia at all sniffed it out, that's how it was going to play out. It was going to be a quick timeout, but they, it didn't look like they were trying to sell it. They lined up and snapped the ball pretty quickly to Mitch Rossi in that situation, which is, a combination of probably Jim Harbaugh already told on them and how they like to have fake punts, but then also just look at the guys who are out there. Emeka Abuka is typically not on punt coverage. He's punt return, yes, but not punt coverage. Donovan Jackson was out there. Um, there's true freshmen like uh, uh, Christian Bennett as a tight end who's out there. The, the personnel very much screamed, we're not punting this ball. So it was more about how fast can we get this off than it was, you know, can we try to trick Georgia's coaching mm. staff into seeing something else? Ben and Christian. Yeah. The idea that, that, that I, that it's, it's, is it Nathan? Is it, is it just good by Kirby? And wasn't there something with Kirby was like on the other channel and then get, got on the correct channel to figure out, Hey, I got to call a timeout here. Well, no, he, he insinuated and I was not in the post game. I was going by watching it later and, um, and reading his answer, but he insinuated that he was never on the right channel. And uh, I, and by channel we're talking about here is on your headset. Yeah, on your headset, you can listen to special teams talk, defense talk, and coaches were talking about it, but maybe he wasn't hearing it. That's what he was saying, that apparently there was a conversation happening on the special teams channel, but he was still on the defensive channel because they were playing defense the snap right before that, and he is still heavily involved in the defense. So he, But he says that he saw the formation. He saw what he recognized as being – potentially a fake formation and decided to burn. And he he was very reluctant to do it. He said that using a timeout there can cost you possessions later. Um, As it worked out for them, they still had a timeout in the bag to use to try to uh, ice Noah Ruggles at the end of the game. And he used, I thought that was another well-used timeout by him because he called it before Ruggles had a chance to go up and try to practice the the 50 yarder uh so just good usage of timeouts i thought in multiple cases tonight by by that night by kirby smart but the i mean (laughs) the game the the win expectancy for this game 
it, it peaked in the, I can't remember, somewhere in the mid-90s after the Mirko punt. So even after they fielded the Mirko punt, Ohio State's win percentage, uh, win probability peaked and then immediately started to plummet after the next play that happened. So that idea, they have an idea, and, and if it's not, they're not really trying to trick it. They're just trying to get out there and go before you can get it off. I certainly saw a screenshot, Stephen, of what you're mentioning. It's three Ohio State guys out wide, two punt protectors, that's five. The punter, that's six, and then six linemen. So that's 12. So they did not get – like the flag wasn't thrown, and it was about – like they got the snap off at the time it was called. So I guess they were going to get away with it. But also, to your point, Stephen, they couldn't get it off quickly enough before Kirby Smart – called the timeout, but also they had too many men on the field. And also, I don't know if they would have gotten away with it because sometimes you can get away with having a penalty and like having too many guys on the field if you've got your normal offense out there and you just go tempo the very next play and now another play has been ran so you can't really review it. They would have then had to get the special teams back out off the field and then get the offense back. And by that time, somebody probably would have rang down from upstairs saying, hey, this doesn't look like we right. we should review this. So either way, this fuck fake punt wouldn't have worked whether Kirby smart sniffed it out or just somebody from upstairs just was like, hold up. There's 12 people out here. Let's run yeah. down to the sideline and get this going. And so that's two games in a row where the fake punt is just not, it, it just hasn't worked for Parker Fleming, which yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Should they execution? Should they think about having a full-time special teams coach? I don't know. That feels yeah. like a possible solution. Wait, it's like he, I mean, he so, doesn't recruit. He doesn't really help out with the other positions. Your job is special teams, and then the two most important special teams plays of the year, you botch both of them. Anyway, so that's where that is. That's the thing that that people are talking about, uh, and we have plenty. We will investigate for the next nine months. I think that, like, we can joke about it. Those are questions that should be asked of the head coach. You have a full time special teams coach, and you're not executing on special teams. What makes it worthwhile to have one of your 10 positions devoted full-time to this? Other thing that we're talking about, Nathan, that came out, and I hope the, I hope we get to have a conversation about this. Ryan Day, Kirk Herbstreet said on the pregame Rose Bowl broadcast that Ryan Day is considering giving up play calling for next season. And this is like fundamental primary, okay. This is, I don't know if it's a game changer, but it's a game adjuster. Um, we should let Jim Knowles name the <laughs> act of Ryan Day giving up play calling. What would you call that, Jim? So this idea, we have talked about this a lot. And the evolution of head coaches and every most every head coach these days who gets a head coaching job gets it because they were successful as a coordinator as a play calling coordinator on one side of the ball and then you do not want to give up the thing that was so good it got you the job and they don't want to do it and it's normal to not want to do it and i know that ryan i mean this is from my reporting i i know that ryan day has i don't know if struggled is the right word but it's not like he's not oblivious to the idea of it it's not like he never thought about it before and then you know, the game ended and he said to Herb Street, you know what? Like he's this is on his mind because he understands the 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 pros and the cons of both. And again, if if people listening have not read it, I wish I would have gotten it up earlier. 
but I didn't. And so I wound up posting like a pretty in-depth story at nine o'clock in the evening, the night before the Peach Bowl, which is not anybody's idea of, of good digital journalism. But I spent time in November for two and a half hours in an Ohio State film room session for the offense, where on a Tuesday they had they had practiced their script of plays that they had devised on Monday. Not devised the plays. That's the whole point of the story. They have all the plays. They pick them out. Here's what we want to run this week. Let's practice them on Tuesday. How's it look? Let's watch every single play of practice and break down. Can we run this in their game or not? Does it make sense? Can we execute it? And Ryan Day is in the back working the clicker with the laser pointer in charge of the session. There's nine other people in the room. Ryan Day is running the show. And from 7.15 at night until 9.45 in the evening on a Tuesday night, the head coach of the team, who has a million things to do, is running the film session. Can we make this block? Can we hit this hole? We're reaching there. How about the footwork here? Do we like this play? Throw this play out. And it was, I mean, it was it was not eye-opening, Nathan. I think we knew that, but it was just, that's the deal. That's two and a half hours of his Tuesday in a game week running the projector because he's that intimately involved. Every single thing they did. So I think when we have a discussion about, and I think this, if you're going to be the person with the play sheet in your hand on Saturday, you have to be in that room on Tuesday. You can't be like, hey, have the session go. I was meeting with uh, some of the defensive guys. How'd that session go? Can we run these plays? Uh, Here's the three plays we can't run. Like the whole point, it's not just who has the sheet. It's that who is the person intimately involved? with creating and leading the game plan creation that then calls it on Saturday. Because when Ryan Day, and I can't remember if I put this in, when Ryan Day was the offensive coordinator in 17 and 18, he was leading that session. Urban Meyer wasn't leading it. Ryan Day was leading it. Now, Urban Meyer was in there, from what I've been told. I think Urban Meyer was in there a lot. It's not Urban Meyer wasn't like, a hey, I'm heading home at 5.30. Shelly and I are going to a movie, right? But then I think if, So now this is my speculation. If the head coach is in there and obviously involved, but not charged with making the plan because he's going to be calling it on Saturday, then if something comes up, you can leave. If something, I got to go meet with this player. I got to go talk with Gene Smith. I got to go sit with the safeties coaches because we got to figure out what we're going to do here. I want to go talk with the special teams, like all those things. You can leave. The way Ryan Day ran that session, he couldn't leave. Like I would have been like, okay, um, do we wait until he gets back? Because he's going to be calling the plays. So Nathan, that's the discussion. I think it's, it's not, it's not just I want to focus on the full team on Saturdays. It's what it, your focus then can become, or at least the ability to focus less on the offense. Even if you want to focus still a lot, you don't have to focus a lot all the time if you're not going to be the guy with the play sheet in the hand. This is going to be an interesting discussion, Nathan. The idea of it that Kirk Herbstreet said Ryan Day told him this. Were you surprised to hear that he's he's considering it this this intently? No, I, I'm not really surprised at this point. I think there have been enough hints that something along these lines needed to be considered. Again, I wrote a piece about this at coming out of the Michigan game, pointing out that you over the last quarter century of major college football. You could argue, I think maybe Jimbo Fisher called plays for whatever, 2013 Florida State, mm-hmm. whatever year that was. I think that's the one example 
And I'm sorry, like that is an extreme outlier because he also had like a generational quarterback that made a lot of things look a lot easier. Like it's there had been too much lining up that this is the way there's the rest of college football had moved this way for a reason. And I don't know, know that necessarily just being a copycat is the smart thing, but it, it, there's a reason why they've done it. And when it's when it's when it's that total of, of the people adopting this policy, I think that's tells you that there's a reason why they've done it. And I think more to the point, it's not it's it's that you can't choose what you're going to focus on any given week. I think when you're the head coach, like there are always going to be distractions and things that are coming up. Just the very nature of what Kirk Herbstreit was talking about, the fact that in addition to all the media stuff that he has to do with us, there's a bunch of other things that you you have to sit down for these production meetings each week with the major rights holders and have separate things. And it's not like each one of those things is huge, but it all does add up. And the head coach has to do those things. Like you're not sending. Kevin Wilson in to do that. Like you are the head coach. You have to go do those things. There's, there are so many time demands and things are going to pop up each week that are time demands that to me, it just makes more sense to delegate this responsibility. And let's not forget as the head coach, as we just talked about with Kirby smart, you're still on the headset. You're still on the offensive. And if you need to jump in and say, you know what? I disagree. Or you, you jump in and say, Hey, uh, let's think about this. Like you can still be very heavily involved with the plays that are getting called. It's just a matter of rearranging the, and I'm not saying it doesn't mean nothing that who's calling the plays, but it, it it's largely more about redistributing the, as you say, the focus each week, because the coaches, the head coach is going to have so many more things that can come up that maybe distract him from that focus. I just think college football is making Ryan day, give up play calling maybe a couple of years before he actually wants to do it because he, does not have time. I mean, Doug, you just said you were in there. He does not have time to sit there for two and a half hours and run that meeting because let's just look at it from a football standpoint and go to the 2021 season when there were weeks where he was coming in basically complaining that I had to spend time with the defense that week because the defense was acting up. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, you're the head coach, but he's also the offensive coordinator. And so now that takes away from that, which takes away from then at that point, a first-year starting quarterback, C.J. Stroud, his development, because the guy who's in charge of him is also the offensive coordinator and the head coach, but he can't give him the intention he needs because he's got to focus on the other side of the ball. Well, he can take his hands off of that now and could, you know, kind of divvy up his, his time a little bit differently with where he wants to focus it. But then also – NIL, transfer portal, recruiting is different. There's just a million different things that are a lot different than four years ago when he took this job that it, it, he was never going to be able to hold on to play calling for six or seven years before he was finally ready to let it go. He was going to have to go to CEO mode a lot sooner than guys of his background typically do when they get head coaching jobs. Inside the Ohio State offensive game plan, colon, how the Buckeyes scheme to beat the nation's best defense. That's the story. If you Google that, you'll find it at cleveland.com. I think it's one of those where he has been called, like, Jim Knowles is the head coach of the defense. You need a head coach of the offense, and then I'm the head coach of the team. Because mm-hmm. it's hard to be the head coach. It was like, oh, let's get Ryan Day to be the head. And again, this was a discussion a year ago. This was part of why they got Jim Knowles. Because in the division of labor... They decided, and this is not just Ryan Day, this is Gene Smith, this is the people that matter who have the best interest of the Ohio State program at heart. This is not Ryan Day walking around saying like, I'm not doing it, right? This is not the Leonardo DiCaprio gif. They decided that was the best use of his time and energy. 
that this is what you're, I mean, you're good at a lot of things when you're a head coach, you have to be, but you're good at this. We want this. And then I don't know if this year was revealing and I don't think it's, I think to your point, Stephen, right. I don't think it's like, oh, we lost to Georgia. I can't call plays anymore. I think it's the mm-hmm. totality of the shift in college football. Right. And he had said it before yeah. that. He had said it before the Georgia it's game, like, the production meeting before the game. And the Georgia game proved he can still call plays. It's just what else did he have to sacrifice over the past month because he was the main guy trying to devise his game plan instead of being someone in the room who could – I'm in there for 20 minutes, but now I'm going to go check on this, and I'll be back in 15 minutes to see how things are going type of guy. So so, so let me say, though, this is – again, I, I – sometimes make comparisons between Kevin Stefanski with the Browns and Ryan day, because Kevin Stefanski, an offensive guy going through some of the same stuff. I think this happened a year ago with Kevin Stefanski. And he said he would think about it. And then after a couple months, he's like, nah, I'm just, I'm going to keep doing it because I do think who's fried. Who's fried at the end of a football season. Anybody fried? I'm fried. Oh yeah. Right. You're fried. Oh yeah. Everybody's fried. The trainers, the staffers, the assistant coaches, the recruiting coordinators, the players, <laughs> the players, the players, the players, the players, the coaches, they're all fried. And you know what I what you think at the end of the year? It's like, I can't do this again. Not like this. This is unsustainable. I am out of juice. I got to go recharge. And then like two months from now, you're like, you know what's fun? Calling plays. And I feel good. So I, I would not like write this. I wouldn't chisel this in stone yet that Ryan Day isn't going to call plays next year. But again, if you go read the story, this certainly helped me. I've, again, I've been doing this for almost two decades now, and it helped me just have a sense, right? Coaches always say, Urban Meyer always said, it's the Urban Meyer offense. Whoever comes here is running the Urban Meyer offense. This room in the Woody, the offensive room, it, floor to ceiling is filled with the Ryan Day offense. They have little magnets. Here's the group of plays we want to pull out and run this week. So there is a way. If Ryan Day is not calling plays, the person who is calling plays is calling the Ryan Day offense. And that coordinator and Ryan Day are going to meet early in the week and talk about which plays they think they want to run that week and which plays they want to pull out and script for practice. Ryan Day is absolutely going to remain part of that. But the plays are the plays. They're up there. And then once they run them in practice, I think you can trust the person who's now the play caller to run through what happened at practice. Can we run this? Can we not? Come back and report. Okay, we're going to adjust this for practice. Good. During practice, Ryan Day's there. He says, I don't like how that looked. Take that out. Okay, we'll take that out, coach. Go in. Ryan Day doesn't have to be in the room as much, whatever. And then they're going to get to a game plan for Saturday, which is all Ryan Day plays. Because the whole walls, every inch of space on the walls, are all Ryan Day plays. But you're just trusting someone else to decide. And and Ryan Day is still going to help decide which ones. But you're going to empower that person more for which ones. You're going to trust that person to to, to be the primary decision maker on what's working in practice and what's not. And then when you get, again, when they get to, again, I I don't want to talk down to people. But, like, it just helped me understand it. There's only a handful of plays for all the situations. Like when you get to third and medium on game day, the the sheet doesn't have 15 third and medium plays. The sheet has like six. When they get Mm -hmm. in the the red zone, when they get the goal line, second and goal from the three, they don't have 17 plays on the sheet. They have four. Because during the week, they've decided when we're inside the 10, these are the plays that we like the best. We're going to script them in practice. We work on them. And then Ryan Day 
we'll let the other guy decide I'm going to run play two instead of play four here, right? But both play two and play four were created by Ryan Day with the help of other people. But it's not like Ryan Day's going to be like, what's that? What was that thing? We had the fullback do throw what? It's like, no, it's not. He knows what it is. But I do think the division of labor, I asked Kirby Smart about it for the story I wrote. Like, Kirby, how do you go about that decision-making process of when you're an expert on one side of the ball, do I want to be the play caller or not? He said, it's changed for me from year to year. He did not describe a linear evolution where in the beginning I wanted to call it. And then as I got older, I, I was comfortable not calling it. He just said, it depends what my team needs. It depends how experienced my coordinators are, how much I'm in there, how much I'm not, how much culture reset I need to do with my team. But I do think, Stephen, that idea. So, Nathan, right. I don't know. I didn't hear everything Herbie said about it. But to me, it's a lot of that stuff. If what if on Tuesday evening, Ryan Day's in there from 715 to 945. What if from 8 to 830, he sat down with Tyleek Williams because Tyleek, Tyleek needs something right there. Mm-hmm. Then what if from 8.30 to 9, he got on the phone and he had a conversation with Luke Whipler because Luke needs something that week, right? And then from 9 to 9.30, they had a little group call where Ryan Day got on with Emeka and Marvin and Xavier and like the receivers just talked it out like, hey, we're good, we're good. And that, Stephen, that's an hour mm-hmm. instead of, can the left guard reach to make this block here? I'm going to trust Justin Fry and Tony Alford and Brian Hartline and Keenan Bailey and everybody, Corey Dennis, everybody else in that room can decide. Can we run this blocking idea on this play with this player? That's ah, a little bit too much to ask that shift this. That's fine. You do that. I'm going to make sure Lathan Ransom's in the right headspace. I'm going to make sure that Donovan Jackson knows we believe in him. I'm going to get on and I'm going to give a, I'm going to have a, a talk with Mayan Williams and Trevion Henderson and let them know that they are fighting through it and we love them. Right, Stephen? Like that's, there's a give and take in a day. And I think you said, I think the idea of like, I think we all knew he'd get here. And maybe he's just getting there earlier because the world's gotten, there's gotten more complicated in college football. I mean, we do this when we have meetings every week. It's like sometimes we'll go, hey, should we still be doing this every time? It's like, okay, well, if we're not going to do that, what are we going to do instead? It's not like we're saying Ryan Day is going to give up play calling and then he's just going to go home at 4.30 every day and get extra rest. It's whether it's meeting with a player or, you know, now he's got extra time to do what meeting to go talk to boosters or whatnot as they're trying to figure out this NIL stuff in the best way that like Ohio State can be involved in that. He He has time for that now. Or, you know, if the number one wide receiver in the country wants to have a conversation with Ryan Day on a Thursday, wants to get on a Zoom call. Well, instead of being in there planning a game plan, he's spending 745 to 815 talking to Jeremiah Smith, you know, and that that one extra 30 minute call a week or every couple of weeks is what helps you hold on to a kid from Florida who's the top wide receiver in the country instead of him going somewhere else because you got him and it's like, oh, well, now I never talk to the head coach because he's so busy doing this. Or it's talking with Gene Smith or doing a media, whatever it is, he's now going to have time to do some of the other, if he decides to do this, obviously none of this is official. It just opens him up to do other things that will also have payoff in the same way while not, you know, it feels like he can't fully do one thing right now. So how about you take your hands off of the wheel of 
this thing that you know you have other coaches that can handle it so that you can kind of get your mind around some of the other stuff that's happening. This was a little uh, – I found this interesting, Nathan, just like talking out what their schedule is. So Sunday they come in, in a typical game week, Sunday they come in, they watch the film from Saturday, and they start thinking about the game plan, and then they practice. Monday the players are off, and that's that's when they script. That's when they really decide, this is what we think we want to run for the opponent the next week. Let's make Let's pick these plays out, and we're going to script practice and get practice ready. So then Tuesday they practice – Tuesday, they watch the film from practice, see how it went. Wednesday, they practice, but they don't watch the film from Wednesday's practice until Thursday morning. And the reason for that is because Wednesday night, Ryan Day has to tape his coach's show. And they don't say, Mm -hmm. and so Ryan Day says, I tell the guys to go home. They can make recruiting calls, that kind of thing. While I do my coach's show, we'll watch the Wednesday film Thursday morning. But what Ryan Day, as it currently stands, doesn't say is, watch the film without me. He has the thing. He has to go do the head coach thing. So they wait until the next morning when they can all be together. Because the way the system is set up now is, and again, I'm not pretending I know every inch of this. And I may be, if I'm misspeaking on something, I apologize. But I, you know, worked on this. That I think, Nathan, I think that's interesting that it is not set up as currently constituted for the nine offensive people in that room to do that two and a half hour session of watching how we ran the plays and practice offensively. It is not set up to do that if Ryan Day is not there running the show. That's how valuable and necessary he is to that part of being the, the, the offensive, the week of Ohio State football, because that's how it's set up right now. That's interesting to me. I know. I think that's fascinating. And I think this is a good time to mention, and maybe you should direct this because I I know that this has come up in conversations you've had, and I can't remember how on the record or off the record they were, but Ryan Day hasn't just been calling plays for uh, ego reasons or uh, even just because that's what he thought was best for the program. That directive came from above him, correct? So Gene was very interested. Listen, uh, you know, Gene Smith was very interested in Ryan Day continuing to do this. And right. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing. Gene Smith hired Ryan Day. Now, I do think if you asked if you asked Gene Smith right now this very second, and he said versions of this publicly, I think multiple times in the past, why did you hire Ryan Day? I think he would say two things primarily. And I'm not sure which one he would say first, but I'm pretty sure the two things he would say would be offensive acumen in a world where offensive acumen is incredibly valuable to winning at the highest level. And the other is culture. I believe in who he is as a person and the way he can establish and communicate a culture to players and staff. And Steven, I don't know that you have to pick between those two, right? I think they are both incredibly valuable. But when Ryan Day started, he had never been a culture coordinator before. You thought he was good at that by the person that you knew him to be, but he had never run an entire organization. You knew he was good at the offensive thing because they put up some points in 2018. They chucked it around, right? You Mm -hmm. knew that. That was for certain. The other one, you thought. 
So I do think over the course of time, and I do think, you know, whatever the toughness conversations, whatever, listen, I think Ryan Day has proven that he relates to people. I think people enjoy working for him. I think certainly he has been very forward facing and I think forward thinking when it comes to the health and welfare and mental well-being and physical well-being of amateur athletes under his care. I don't think that's lip service. And so I do think it's almost the reverse of like, when you start off, both are equally important, but you know he's good at one, you think he's good at the other, but you definitely don't want him to give up the thing that you know he's good at. So now you're four years in, and if you believe now you know, you have proof, not just an inclination, you have proof he's good at both. So then what do you do? Would it be then, well, now we can lean a little bit more into Ryan Day focusing on culture because we think we're going to get a lot of bang for the buck out of Ryan Day focusing on culture. And it's not that he's not good at the other thing, but we're okay giving some of that away because we think it's needed here. And the one thing, Stephen, when I bring up this Browns conversation, it's been a conversation with the Browns sometimes because I think like the play calling hasn't been great. And I also from afar don't think the culture has been great. Certainly there's been some criticism of like, is Ryan Day aggressive enough? What was his third down call? Three points against Michigan in the second half. We're not saying he's been a perfect play caller, but I don't think anyone has thought like, well, this is a mess. You better get someone else to call plays because you're terrible at this. You maybe at times thought this could be better. And I don't think the culture is a mess. I don't think anyone's saying like, oh my God, there's players are running around doing crazy stuff. There's infighting. Like they don't know, they don't know how to win. They're not together. I don't think there's a disastrous problem in either Steven, but I could see why they want to go here. Right. Cause sometimes, and this is what we talk about all the time. You make a decision. Do you make a decision from weakness or do you make a decision from strength? There are certainly things that Ohio State can do better. But, Stephen, if, if Ryan Day chooses this, I don't think it's a decision from weakness of like, well, this was a massive failure. We better change things. I think it's more of we think it can be better, and let's make this adjustment. Do you agree with that idea? I think if we were having this discussion at this point last year, I think you might be able to make an argument that, eh, because it was slipping when you, you know, got guys quitting in the middle of the games and all the other stuff that happened that you know, just it yeah. wasn't reported. We don't find out about because then it's more about that's all happening while there's a huge chunk of this team who probably just doesn't have real time around each other because when they got here, we were all still stuck inside. So it was come do football stuff and then go home, forget all the camaraderie stuff. So maybe the, the catch up there, that's your argument. But from the offensive acumen standpoint, the Ohio State offense is what it is. It's probably been the best offense over the past four years accumulated. And regardless of how we feel about this upcoming quarterback battle with Devin Brown and Kyle McCord, I don't think anybody thinks that the quarterback plays about to fall off a cliff. Do we? We think at worst, it'll be pretty decent. And also, he's got all the same weapons that this quarterback just had. And so they'll raise the bar, even if the quarterback isn't quite what CJ Stroud was his last game as a Buckeye. So, the offensive part is established. So maybe you can take your hand off there. It's almost like raising a kid when they're like 16, you can maybe take your hand off the wheel a little bit, not completely, but they at least have some idea of how to operate this world at that point. While the culture part is you think you can build a culture, but 
he is a quarterback's coach, which means that he was in charge of building a culture in a room where at max it's four players, but typically it's probably two or three. And that room is supposed to have leaders in it who are supposed to inspire culture anyway. So if that should be the easiest room on, an, on a football roster to build culture in because they're already supposed to be doing that stuff. You're asking him to go from doing that with three or four guys a year to doing it with 85 plus however many walk on So make 125 people. And you can't do that if you're focused on an offensive game plan or you're spending so much of your time on that or sitting with your starting quarterback because that's what you do when you're a quarterback's coach. Go ahead. I want to ask about this. I want to ask about this because we've always thought that he's kind of three things, Nathan, right? He's kind of three things. He's the head coach. Yep. He's the offensive coordinator and he's the quarterback's coach in some mm-hmm. ways. And again, this was, you just try to, I, I, we're not going to pretend we know everything. But in the post-game news conference, when C.J. Stroud and Ryan Day were talking, and C.J. Stroud is talking about, I get up every morning and I talk to this guy on the phone. The C.J. Stroud and Ryan Day are getting up like, C.J. Stroud, I, yeah. I don't know if it's a standing call. I don't know if Ryan Day calls him on his way in to the Woody and they talk. I don't know if C.J.'s walking to class and he's got Ryan Day on the earbud, right? Mm-hmm. But again, and I'm not saying Nick Saban and Bryce Young don't talk every morning. Maybe they do. But that to me was another thing of like, okay, like, well, that's not, and it's not like, can you imagine being like, Ryan Day's like, okay, guys, what are you, ugh, it's CJ again. I mean, that's not what it's just like, oh, who is it? Oh, God, the starting quarterback won't leave me alone. That is not what anyone is saying. Ryan Day wants to talk to CJ Stroud. But let, I want to ask you to both rank these. Nathan, we'll start with you. The three things that Ryan Day's primary thing, well, let me ask four. Nope, let me ask five, which I guess is the point. <laughs> yes, I think that's it. That's the end of the conversation. Let's, that's what I was saying before. Yeah. These five I think, things I, I, I think we just made our entire point for why it's a good idea if Ryan Day gives a play calling, because if you don't stop here, we're going to get to 10. Yeah. Okay, so here are the five that I have right now for for responsibilities. Um. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One is head coach, which is like Mm -hmm. culture. Everybody's together like that. You're the leader, right? One is offensive coordinator, play caller. One is quarterbacks coach. One is still in many ways, like the, the face of the recruiting operation, if not the leader of the recruiting operation. But as you said, Stephen, like you got to maintain relationships, especially with the biggest guys. You got to close in certain situations. You got to make sure you're talking with Pantone to be like, okay, we like this. We like that. Okay. Okay. I trust Mark Pantone, but you can't hand that off entirely, Stephen, right? I, I will actually, let me touch on this before we even get down further this road. Ryan Day has been known as a closer. On the recruiting trail, which which is what you want from your head coach a lot of times, is the BA closer. Urban Meyer became a closer. Um, they didn't close on a lot of mm. important guys in this cycle. And is some of that because Ryan Day couldn't be as focused on being a closer because he was doing the other nine things we're going to talk about on this list? Does that play a role in why Dylan Raiola has now decommitted? Because maybe he did – maybe Ryan Day – I mean, let's just keep it a buck. I don't care who your quarterback's coach is. You get a per- the number one quarterback in the country who's also the best player. His first direct contact needs to be with the head coach, especially yeah. when the head coach is a quarterback. Was that not the case? And if it's not, it's, it's understandable why it's not the case if the head coach has 30 million things going on and you have a quarterback's coach. So it's understandable if that's not what happened. But if Ryan Day had, I don't know, 
30 extra minutes in his day to just call Dylan Raiola every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday so that kid didn't feel neglected, even if it wasn't on purpose? Does that maybe help? Even if Nebraska's doing what Nebraska's doing, but how much could could Ryan Day done maybe 2% more in that to right. keep that from happening? That literally just because of what his time in a week is like, what his 40 hours is like, he doesn't have time to do it. And maybe it costs you oh, this player. 80 hours, or maybe 120 it, hours. Yeah, I know. I know. It's just 40 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot more than 40. 40 is just a general statement. We know that. But it's obviously more than 40 hours. But in his work week, time adds up, and he just didn't have time to call Dylan Rayola as many times as maybe he would like to. Respect, and we don't know that. Right. Who knows? We, yeah, we don't we, know that. Fact, I'm, yeah, this we know is, is all, the number one quarterback in the country decommitted from Ohio State, and, which and is no not one, Yeah, and nobody really knows why yet. So we're trying to why did this happen? Okay, how come they didn't close on this five-star recruit or this five-star recruit? Some of it is NIL, yes, but also your head coach is the closer, but if he doesn't have time to be the best closer he can be like he's been in other cycles, let's look at some of the reasons why and where can we find him a little bit more time to do that. And then the last one I'll say is maybe like CFO, like chief financial officer, which is more a more specific sort of like NIL you got to mm-hmm. talk to donors and boosters and keep them happy. Just like an additional thing that recruiting to me, if I'm going to say that is like relationships with the players, strategizing which players you want to try to get and then building relationships with them. But now this other thing is maybe something that didn't exist before. It's like, well, we got to figure out like the ins and outs of, can we compete in the marketplace? So Nathan, if those are the five, maybe we don't have to rank them, but if you want to rank them, you can, but I want to ask this question primarily of those five, has it reached the point where, the thing that got him hired, which is offensive coordinator play caller, could possibly, reasonably, now be fifth on that list of five in terms of the, the way in which the differentiation between him doing it and someone else doing it, because the job still has to be done, is that, is, is that where the gap is the smallest, which means that's where he can pull back? I think there's no question that it's fifth on that list now. I mean, I guess ask yourself this. If everybody else had gotten alien abducted and Keenan Bailey had had to call plays against Arkansas State, does Ohio State win? Like there are games... Yes, win by the same exact score, honestly. There are, right. There are games where who is calling the plays doesn't matter. And there are games where it very much does. I'm not saying that all of the games don't matter. I think it absolutely mattered that a very competent play caller, an experienced, smart play caller was calling the plays against Georgia. That's how you put up 41 points against a defense that good. I'm not naive. I'm not that naive. But there are other weeks where the head coach, it it, it does become almost, and I don't know that maybe he backs off in some ways of those weeks. I don't know. It doesn't sound like he does, though. So it, to me, if the head coach is doing a normal week of offensive coordinator work to prepare for Arkansas State, that is wasted time. And Western Kentucky and 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 Youngstown State and whoever they're going to play next year—that would be the case. So you have now assembled a staff. If you're Ryan Day, where you've got you've got Justin Fry, who was a non-play calling assist uh, offensive coordinator at UCLA, but at least has has been at the upper tier of of that room in some way. You've got uh, Tony Alford, you've got Brian Hartline, you've got Keenan Bailey. You've assembled kind of a mind trust of of different pieces here that I think could, in the aggregate, do this 
without it having to be something that takes up a ton of his time. I think there's no question that of all those duties and, and the other and the important crucial thing to remember is just in the time since he's been head coach, the transfer portal, I mean, there were transfers happening before then, but the way that it's become a flood into free agency and that you have to muddle through and try to protect your roster to some extent that has changed since he became head coach. Name, image, and likeness was still a nightmare that Jim Delaney was having in 2019. It was nowhere near this, what we're doing now and the reality that it is and the time that it takes up, the effect that it has on your program day to day. So there's, like I was, like I started this whole thing off, the things that distract his focus, that any head coach's focus are so numerous that it's, I think, hard to lock away this portion of your time each week. It just makes so much more sense. And that's why every other program in the country, at least the ones that are actually contending for national championships, have already done it. Well, I guess like Lincoln Riley's calling plays, right? Yes. Yeah. How many? And, how close does he come to winning a national championship? I mean, no, he gets the playoffs. He's come like very, get, very close. Uh, he well, gets the playoff and gets blown well, out. I mean, that's, I don't know that that's the comparison Ryan Day wants. I don't think that's the comparison Ryan Day wants. Well, but we can't act like no winning teams have head coaches who call plays. I mean, so oh, right, right. your point of championship, because winning team is not good enough. That's not the Ohio State standard. Right. Winning team has got good enough. So winning teams can still do it. And Chip still calls plays, right? Is that what we're like Chip at UCLA? Chip calls plays. Uh-huh. Who right. is Ryan Day's mentor. Right. So this so so. So I know what you're saying, like, does what? Well, because the problem is this, like, there's a small, very small group of people who win championships. So it's like, does Nick Saban call the defensive signals for Alabama? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, that wipes out. And then Dabo was like, never a coordinator. Dabo went like to receivers coach mm-hmm. to like climb up the thing. And so Dabo's, Dabo's, I mean, Dabo's been nothing but a culture coach from the jump. And we saw that, we see that all the time. And we see it in a way where it's like, okay, Dabo. But we also see in a way when it's like, I don't know, man, it seems like the hundred guys in that locker room believe him, which frankly is all that matters. Mm-hmm. So, but we also then existed in a world where it's like, oh, Clemson's coordinators left. They might be terrible now, which is what people wondered, which is when your head coach is the play caller, you don't have to worry about the offensive play caller ever leaving. Right. So there's, I do think there's good and bad. I don't think it's only that like, Hey, you can't have your head coach call in place. I, I don't think it's impossible. But I do think it is difficult, and I do think it is more difficult. But I do think the thing that I think again is interesting. Well, for, Stephen, that list of five. Would you say offensive play caller is bottom on the list of five? Head coach, culture, all that stuff. Offensive coordinator slash play caller, quarterbacks coach, recruiting face and closer, and CFO, making sure all the money stuff is straight with boosters and donors, and your NIL is in shape. Would you put offensive coordinator, play caller last on that list? Yes, just because of the things on that list that I'm thinking what would happen if he didn't do it, if he, if he just took that off, it's the one where I feel like there'd be the least drop-off in how things are run in the operational if he just decided he wasn't going to do it anymore. So I do think the one thing, again, that was interesting being in that room, Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson were the two guys who, they were like the podcast hosts. They were probing they were asking the questions and then justin fry and tony alford and Corey dennis and and brian hartline and keenan bailey and riley jeffers and todd fitch and everybody tim hinton now that's everybody is in the room they're answering the questions why do we do this here what if we did this there well this is a b c d e 
could we do this here? X, Y, Z, right? So it was like two veteran dudes who had been around asking the questions. And now if they both are gone, that's a little bit interesting to me because it's like, and Kevin Wilson was a little more run game. Ryan Day was a little more pass game. It doesn't mean they never asked about the other thing, but that was sort of the division of labor, I think, in that way. And it is interesting to me, Nathan, that we may be entering this world where now Kevin Wilson is also leaving. So it makes me, it makes me a little curious about like, well, who's going to be asking the questions, right? Because, and actually, I think we're curious also like, well, who's going to be calling the plays? Like, does this mean Brian Hartline's going to have a play sheet on Saturdays calling plays? Like that, that's, very interesting. You got to figure out who's going to do that. Would it be Justin Fry? I don't know. Would it be Tony Alford? I don't know. I think a lot of people would assume it's Brian Hartline. I don't know that we know that 100% for sure right now because they've made the hire in the room. So Keenan Bailey was already in the room, given input as a staffer. Keenan Bailey. So Keenan Bailey's input will rise. And again, as we mentioned many times, it's you don't have to be around it for more than five seconds to realize how much Ryan Day respects and likes Keenan Bailey and how potentially valuable he can be to this entire offensive scheme. But who's the – like, Brian Hartline's still pretty young. Keenan Bailey young, Corey Dennis young. Justin Fry and Tony Alford are not that young, but they haven't been play callers before, right? So is it, it is interesting, Nathan, that this potentially would happen when the guy – and even beyond the Saturday, but, like, the guy who you think could, like, run the room – would be Kevin Wilson, who's already gone. So it doesn't mean they can't figure it out, but it's just a fascinating idea that they that maybe they're reaching this point now because that really is going to shift that whole process. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how this does shake out because I, I'm not ready to just say for certain that it would be Heartline. Um, I do think we're going to see some jostling of titles probably still again coming in this, you know, there could be an OC and a co-OC just to keep like shifting people around and changing responsibilities. I don't know, but it's all got to flow through one guy on Saturdays. That's what you end. That's what we're talking about here, right? Like it's, is just who it, who is actually the one saying the words on Saturday mornings, Saturday afternoons. So uh, like I said, they've got some options here. Um, we don't know yet if there's going to be further changes to the coaching staff that could still happen. So that could shake things up a little bit too, but I just think it, to me it's 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 a sign of it's a sign of progress here. I think it's a sign of maturity. I don't look at this as something that Ryan Day is doing as a from a from a, a point of like weakness or like you know desperation that you have to go fix something. I think it's just a, a realization that as you, you the, the program that he took over also in 2019 was just stacked beyond belief on the side of the ball that he didn't need to worry about. And that hasn't, that is not the case anymore. They're going to have some good guys coming back on defense next year. I think there's reason for optimism there, but the totality of things that he needs to have influence in, in this program now has, has spread since when he started. And this is, I think a, a very smart decision. If he, if it's the one he ends up making, it's a smart decision um, and, and puts him in better position to win long-term. In reading your story, Doug, just how vocal Justin Fry was in that room for this being his first year, he would be at the top of my list as the guy who I, I would expect that they would hire another person, another coordinator maybe, but I would expect that maybe Justin Fry takes over as the play caller. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you could have a world where like Hartline and Fry have co-OC titles or something. But, yeah. but again, someone still has to be first among equals in the decision making in the room. And somebody is first mm-hmm. among equals of here's what we're calling. It's second and six on Saturday. What's the call? So 
fascinating, will continue to be a major offseason story. And when we come back on Buckeye Talk, we'll talk about the crazy thing that I want to bring up next. If you'll be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315. I do think there was somebody who um, – so it's one of those things I always say you can sign up and you can like pay money to yell at us or yell at me, or, and that's fine. And and you can. But um, be respectful. if you yell at us and say the F-bomb a lot, then I'm going to say you can leave. Type stop and you can leave because we don't really want you. It's not worth it for the F-bombs. That's the only kind of the only thing. So I said that I've said that to some people like there's a limit. It's just not fun. I do think I like Twitter is a cesspool. So I, the text is like an elevate, I think is 1000% elevated. And I'm not saying that everybody who's on Twitter, that everybody listening to this, who's on Twitter is, is a reason for the cesspool. But I think you understand that we all end up, I'm, we're on Twitter. You end up swimming in that pool sometimes. And I don't think that's what our tech subscription is. I don't want it to be that pool. So I just like try to explain to people, this is not really an F-bomb kind of place. So, you know, maybe leave. So there's not many. It's not many. It's not. But like if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for like the gut reaction of like F this, F that, the team that I like lost, F, 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 then I don't know. Then maybe it's not for you, which is fine. And I understand that that's how some people react to sports and to life. That's great that everybody can react. But like this probably is not your venue, which is fine. But we have a text subscriber survey coming up next that I think is going to be very valuable. But I want to talk about this. Nathan reports out again that Jim Harbaugh may be interested in the NFL. And maybe like the reports are like if he gets an offer, he's going to take it. And I think the two teams whose names have come up are the Denver Broncos and the Indianapolis Colts, which immediately led me to what if the Colts hire Jim Harbaugh and draft CJ Stroud? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Would well, it be the the weirdest thing that ever happened in the Ohio State Michigan rivalry? I don't know if, if you've watched uh Russell Wilson fart around a football field much this year, but the Broncos need a quarterback pretty soon too. Uh they don't have a lot of fool around time there. So but they I traded think, all their picks. They don't have any picks. They did. They did. They did. You're right. You're right. Uh, so I, I think that's incredibly interesting. I did an interview last week with a Indianapolis radio station, actually, because they wanted to ask about CJ Stroud because they know that that's one of the, the possibilities. And that would be a really f- fascinating connection. Um, and, and the Colts, uh, almost make too much sense. Although they're the, that owner right now seems intrigued by Jeff Saturday for some reason. So um, it, it's also a, a it's also a, a franchise that I have some concerns about. <laughs> I think Steven, it, would you're greatest, it would be the greatest troll job in the world if he takes the Colt job and then sometime in the next five years the Colts win a Super Bowl and he can be like, see, Ryan, this is how you take it with CJ Stroud with CJ oh, yeah. Stroud. This with is how you take a league. This is how you take an elite quarterback and win championships with them. I can show you how to win trophies. <laughs> I just let they, me ask you this though: would it, would it be weird enough that potentially, if the Colts draft, if the Colts hire Jim Harbaugh, would they feel at all like I don't know if we could draft CJ Stroud because we're we're creating? Listen, the rivalry. As much as people, the rivalry. There is no limit to the rivalry yeah. for fans. There's uh, none for fans. Right. There's right. none. When right. you are in college and then you have a job and then you ha- go get paid for your job, 
I think there can be a limit to the rivalry. Now people yeah. make bets and whatever, yes. but like Denzel Ward and Donovan Peoples Jones both play right. for the Browns. They don't hate each other because one went to Ohio State right. and one went to Michigan. So right. I would normally say it's once you get all those zeros on your contract, nobody really cares where you went to college. Your professionals work together. I think, Nathan, this might be the exception to the rule. I I wonder about it because it has not just been a rivalry. It has been antagonistic, right? It's been personal in some ways. And it's at the highest level. It's the two most important people in the organization for in their previous incarnations didn't just compete against each other, but I think hated each other. Or at least I don't. I haven't heard C.J. Stroud say that. And C.J. Stroud has a kind heart, so maybe he doesn't hurt anybody. But, like, Jim Harbaugh has been kind of a jackhole to Ohio State, and he's beaten them twice. And not being able to beat Michigan is, like, part of C.J. Stroud's legacy. And now I'm going to go play for the guy? I don't know. There's there's a part of me that would be like, I don't know if that might be, like, at least, if not untenable, at least in the beginning, problematic. I, I, I get it. I, and it so. I don't think so. I, and, 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 and Harbaugh has – Yes, Harbaugh has been kind of snide towards Ohio State, but no more so, I think, than Ohio State's been towards Jim Harbaugh at times. And Jim Harbaugh and Ryan Day have had their public and not-so-public jawing, but uh, Jim Harbaugh has been very, very, very publicly uh, complimentary of C.J. Stroud and the yeah. kind of quarterback he is and how talented he is and how much he respects him. And there's, I don't think anybody's ever asked C.J. Stroud about Jim Harbaugh because it, that hasn't really mattered. So, I mean, listen, it, it's called pro football for a reason. I think C.J. Stroud is a, a pro in many of the ways that he approaches this game and has already been thinking about this potentiality, not this potentiality, but the pro potentiality for a long time. And Jim Harbaugh, for all the things that people think of him. And by the way, like the, the, the personality contrast to go from Ryan Day to Jim Harbaugh is like your two coaches to go from like the very straight laced uh, normal guy to like the space cadet would be jarring but i think he'd figure i think they'd figure it out i don't i don't think this would be an issue and i think it, it on top of that you know if listen like there's a lot of coaches around the nfl who you don't have you've never seen take a team to a super bowl you'd be getting drafted by a team with a coach who's taking a team to a super bowl you know that the guy knows how to coach he just beat you two years in a row i'd be pretty excited honestly if i were cj stroud going to that team they also have a level of a relationship already so from their standpoint, yeah. I mean, Michigan finished third for for C.J. Stroud in that race behind Ohio State and Georgia. So the relationship's already there. It's a question during that introductory press conference when C.J., Jim Harbaugh, and Colts owner sit, are sitting there and the GM's sitting there and somebody's going to go. Which we will hey, be C- at. Yeah. C.J. Someone. Gonna ask, yeah. Someone. Yeah. Someone. <laughs> someone on we, this podcast someone yeah. on this podcast will be at and go hey cj is this weird to be playing for the man you couldn't beat for the past two years or and then someone's gonna ask jim harbaugh hey how's it feel to finally get to coach cj Stroud after finishing third for him you know all that stuff and then it becomes a question again next year when the ohio state michigan game comes up and they go hey are you guys doing any cool bets between coaching and quarterback about this ohio state football game michigan football game but other than that i mean this they're professionals that that uh, and they don't hate each other so they just kind of let it be what no, it is but i think jim harbaugh and ryan day might hate each other and i think ryan day is one of the most important people in cj stroud's life yeah so I, that's I, the thing I, yes there's well, that just, but 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 also like i guess i mean but during the during the pre-draft process 
There's going to be a lot of Indianapolis front office people talking to Ryan Day about C.J. Stroud. It's really, I mean, the Harbaugh part of it is going to be a little bit more removed. But also, let's just say Harbaugh was announced as the Colts coach today as we finish up this pod. And then when Jim Harbaugh comes to Columbus for the the pro day and he's sitting down with Ryan or he's standing over on the corner talking with Ryan Day about C.J. Stroud. Is Ryan Day going to sit there with an attitude or is he going to do everything he can to talk good about his player, even if it has to be to that guy? I'm just mostly talking about if they are end up working together and C.J. Stroud, I'm not saying it is this, but if C.J. Stroud's like impression of Jim Harbaugh is like, this guy's kind of a jackhole. Like, I don't like him. Yeah, I, he mm. recruited me and whatever, but like for the last two years, it's built up in me that like, not just like as an opponent on the football field, but personally, I don't like him. And now he's my boss. I just think it might be weird. I'm I, I, like, I'm 90% sure it would be fine, but I think it would be, it's like, Top five answers on the board. Here's the question. Name two schools that a quarterback and a coach could come from on the way to the NFL that might make it a little bit weird, right? It's like it just would be it's the height of if this ever could be a thing in a world where people are professionals and money talks and you're trying to win a Super Bowl with whoever's in the room with you. That's the deal. We get that. If you're ever going to throw a wrench into that, it might be this. That's all. It might look exactly like this. So we have a whole offseason to talk about this. I also think the Colts are going to wind up. I think the Colts have like the fourth or fifth pick as it stands right now. It very much looks like the Texans and the Bears are going to have the top two picks. I think if unless the Texans win and the Bears lose, then the Texans will pick number one. And it feels like everybody thinks that the Texans will take Bryce Young. That would be my guess as well. Mm-hmm. I then also would think that C.J. Stroud wouldn't get to five because I think it's possible. The Bears obviously don't need a quarterback, but they can ransom that pick for whoever wants mm-hmm. to jump. There is that, but they also – there's talk out there that they may be enamored with Jalen Carter. Who yeah, that'd be a mistake. The Maybe the Bears as a number two pick. Maybe yeah, Will Anderson. Right. I get it, but it's like would you rather – but depending, could you take um, – I would move. Could down you do the, something where you slide down a little bit and still get like a really good defensive player at six? Yeah. That's what I would so. probably do. I'm just saying that 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 is the other thought that's out there. It sounds yeah. like a Bears so, fan who is used to his organization making the dumber decision of the two. Well, it, it may be the dumber decision. It may. I mean, we'll have a Jalen Carter discussion after we do our film rewatch. But I mean, he was rated the way he was for a reason this year. He's pretty impressive. No, no, I'm not saying like he's not a good player. It's just like maximizing what you can do. It's, in it's tough. It's tough sometimes. Are you going to take a potential like once in a lifetime kind of not once in a lifetime, once in a generation type of talent, or do you spread it out and try to fill a bunch of mm-hmm. needs? They're in a tough spot, but they put themselves in one anyway. So I, I wanted, I wanted to talk about that at least briefly, because it just is a little weird. So let's get to the survey. This is, Many, 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 many hundreds of responses. And we had theorized on the postgame podcast when we had not yet gone through the text. And I'll be honest, again, I have not gone through the, the text yet. I've gone through some. So we're mostly going to lean on the survey right now, and I think it will be instructive. So we'll, we'll comment on the answers here. There are uh, 73 questions in the survey. Now, there's 12. 12 questions in the survey. How do you feel about the Ohio State football program now compared to where you were leading up to this game? So the choices were, I feel much worse about Ohio State. I feel somewhat worse about Ohio State. I feel the same, 
I feel somewhat better or I feel much better about Ohio State. So the winning answer was, I feel somewhat better. And then the second best answer was, I feel much better. Nathan, it was 46% somewhat better, 34% much better. That is a combined 80% of the people feel better about Ohio State after that game. Only 4% of the the tech subscribers felt worse. 17% felt the same. That sounds right. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, consider coming out of the Michigan game, as much as we harped on five plays, it was an offensive letdown too, an offensive failure in the second half of that game. At least here you showed that one half of your team, and especially the, the, the half of the program that's supposed to be like tuned up at a elite national level, could bring it when they had to and bring it against arguably the best defense they saw all year. So, or what we're certainly in the, 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 the conversation. So I, I, I think it's, it's completely reasonable to say we got on, we Ohio state fans to say they got on the field, their team got on the field with the best of the, in the country right now, what is the, like the crown jewel of college football and they pushed them down to the last second lost by one point. I don't know how you don't, yes, I think you should absolutely be, you know, devastated, you know, heartbroken that that kick didn't go through the uprights and that they gave up the late touchdown and couldn't make the stand be disappointed in all those things, but feel better overall than you did coming out of the Michigan game. I think that's no question. Steven, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, that's about the best you could feel about your football team when they lost a football game is it literally comes down to just like a kick didn't stay online. So this is a companion question to that. Which is closer to describing how you feel about the game? Ohio State blew it and should have won. Ohio State fought hard and came up just short. I promise I am exactly 50% of both. And so everybody I had did to swear people, an affidavit. You had to yeah. like sign an e-sign a thing and, and fact We're going to us. attach electrodes <laughs> to your brain and, and decide if you're telling the truth or not. The middle answer did not win, which sometimes the middle answer is what we expect to win. 30% gave the middle answer. I'm 50-50. Steven, which do you think won then? Blew it or fought hard? I'm wondering how mad fans still are at Jim Knowles and, went, said, and said blew it. Well, this was right after the game. This went out right after, pretty quick after the game, right, Doug? So, And I will or say, uh, no, no, no. no. The survey went out in the morning. The survey went out about like one o'clock on Sunday. Right. Yeah. And there were several hundred people who responded immediately. And then there were more who responded over the course of the day. Okay. So not today, but also not immediately after the game. Right. So Steven says he thinks Blewett won. Nathan, you think Blewett or fought hard? Uh, I think Blewett won. And I think you can vote Blewett and still say you feel better about Ohio State after. That's that's a good, I think that's nuanced there. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Fought hard won. (laughs) Fought hard won. 41% 41% fought hard, 30% um, split down the middle, 29% blew it. That is, I, th- I think, so I think th- the reason we're asking this is because I think this loss was about as good of a loss, and Stephen, what you, you just said, it's about as good of a loss as a program could have. Mm-hmm. And I think given where Ohio State was 
losing to its rival, some questions on signing day, but my gosh, they're one of four teams in the playoff. I think it was probably the weirdest that a team had entered the playoff in the nine years of the playoff, like the like the weirdest vibe around any of the four best teams in the country. I, I think this went a pretty long way, Stephen. I think this will change mm-hmm. the offseason for the hearts and stomachs and brains and personalities of fans, which is what we care about. People listening to this podcast, our tech subscribers, everybody out there who for some reason is an Ohio State fan but does not participate in Buckeye Talk. Why would you do that? But all those people, I do think like their their blood pressure has been lowered for the next nine months. And they can believe in their team a little bit more. And I think the number one thing that any fan wants to do in any sport is to believe in your team. There's two things you want to do. You want to believe in your team. And by believe in, I believe that they have a chance to succeed and they are doing everything they can to succeed, right? And then you want to be proud of your team. And proud yeah. of your team is do it the right way, fight hard, even if you're not winning. Because you cannot believe in your team, which sometimes is more like a coach thing, but you still can be proud of your team, right? And sometimes yeah. you can believe in your team and not be proud in your team of your team. Because it's like, well, they're, I think they're going to win, but man, they're cheating their butts off or they're a bunch of jackholes while they're doing it, right? So they're not the same thing. And you don't have to have one because you have the other. But they're the two most important things for any fan base. I do think the toughness conversation goes a little bit towards the proud, right? But I do mm-hmm. like the aggressive play calling and that kind of thing. That goes toward the believe, the recruiting, right? Recruiting is believe. Are you doing what it takes in NIL? I don't think those either of those like plummeted off a cliff after Michigan, but I think both were questioned. And Stephen, I think both are now trending up even after a loss. And I think that is healthy for Ohio State football. And by Ohio State football, that's everybody. The people doing it and the people rooting for it. I think they are in a better place and perhaps a significant, significantly better place than they were when that game kicked off. I think everybody needed Saturday to happen. Even like the the way the loss went because I mean, it just wasn't a fun 30 days around Ohio State. You lose to Michigan again. So Michigan's in the playoff. Your entire playoff hope now rests on can Utah beat USC, which I mean you didn't know whether that could or could happen or not. I don't know. Uh, you're losing recruits, you're losing recruiting battles, your class is good, but we're going, it could have been this, but NIL got in the way, which is like, wait, are we not like okay with NIL either? How much else is wrong with this football team? Wait, Kevin Wilson is leaving as well? We paid this guy $2 million in our defenses. It just wasn't a good time to be around Ohio State, whether you were a fan whether you are a media member, whether you're even a player or a coach, like I don't think anybody was having fun for 30 days. And it feels like some of this stuff we still still needs to be fixed. There's still going to be some questions that we're going to have this off season about how things are going in different capacities. But the, at least as a fan, you know, now your team is good in terms of, yes, we're, we do have it. We do have some juice. Now, how much juice? I don't know. We'll see, but it's, at least you know there is some there. You're not dealing with an empty cup, and you're not sure where you're going. All right, next question was, when Georgia took over down six with 236 to play, what did you think was going to happen? Ohio State was going to get the stop. Georgia was going to drive and score and take the lead. Uh, Nathan, what 
percent of the vote do you said I thought Ohio State was going to get the stop? What's your guess? Eighteen percent. Steven, get the stop. What percent? With the way that game was starting to go, I'd say eleven percent. You guys are right around sixteen percent said get the stop. So Nathan, we're going to talk about this when we do the defensive breakdown, defensive breakdown from the Peach Bowl. But you are working on a story just sort of about the state of the defense overall, all the things we talked about before the season, where do they need to rank, what should they be able to do. It is, I think this is, a, this is partially indicative that A, the first, so the, the second part of the equation is they did not get the stop. That's the most important part of the equation. But the first part of the equation is the fans did not think they would get the stop. <laughs> so if if the defense now, and I do think there's something here that I think is valuable. And actually, Bill Landis said this to me, which was a reminder. Offenses have an edge. Like offenses yep. Yep. kind of are supposed mm-hmm. to score. It's not a 50-50 proposition of like, hey, should you, when you're playing two good teams, you're probably going to get to a high scoring game. You're probably going to get to the offense winning more often, right? So it's not like, hey, you know, Iowa would have gotten the stop. It's like, I don't know if Iowa would. Like that team with who they are, with as long as Stetson Bennett's been around, with the Kenny McIntosh and Brock Bowers and an offensive line you believe in, there was a pretty good chance that that Georgia team intangibly schematically all the respect for Todd Monken. People read my story about that last week. He calls it really well. They would have scored Nathan on, I think on a lot of people there, but if you had full throated belief in this Ohio state defense, and it was 1000% of what you thought it might be when they hired Jim Knowles, it would have been higher than 16%, right? It would have been higher than that. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the other thing to factor in here, not only do, do offenses have an advantage, Georgia's really good. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the other thing to factor in here. There's there's belief in Stetson Bennett at that point. There's belief in the talent that they have at receiver. That's That all factors into why I was thinking about that game the way I did at that time. And I was part of the 84% that thought Ohio State was going to score. So it's... That Georgia was going to score. That Georgia was yeah. going to score, yes, yes. So, so it... That, that that dynamic all has to it all it all plays in together in that moment. I mean, it's it's almost rare that you would that that you see teams in those circumstances not not score there. Like that's to to get down the field. Like I, I it just I thought it was a certainty almost. Yeah, I kind of thought it was a certainty too. All right, so let's go to the other side, Stephen. When Ohio State took over with 54 seconds left, down one, and I didn't add with two timeouts. What did you think was going to happen? Ohio State would win, Georgia would win. Steven, what percent do you think said Ohio State would win? <laughs> it might be the exact same as the people who thought Georgia was going to score. I'll say 84%. Okay. Nathan? Oh, I think, uh, I mean, you've got, again, you didn't say the two timeouts. People may remember that. But even without timeouts, 54 seconds is a long time to go down and try to get a field goal. I mean, I, I think I thought, in my own head, on a 100% ratio, I was probably leaning towards Ohio State would still win that game because Noel Ruggles has been a great kicker inside of 50 yards in his career. So I would say, oh, I don't know, 50, uh, 61% said Ohio State would win. Okay. Closer to Steven, 79% yeah. thought Ohio State would win. And so if I said 
Did you think with 56 seconds left, Ohio State down one, with C.J. Stroud, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Marvin Harrison Jr., Cade Stover, Travion Henderson, and this offensive line, do you think Ohio State is going to win? I think it would have been 140% yes. <laughs> I will say, Stephen, yeah. when they took over with the people they had, I kind of did not think they were going to score. Now, it's not like letting them off the hook for not scoring because they did move the ball. I did not think that C.J. Stroud was going to run 27 yards for a, the biggest play of potentially the whole game, the biggest play of the season, right? Mm-hmm. I did not think that was going to happen. And I did think in a world where I found it reasonable that Georgia would go score on the Ohio State defense. Also, even though I thought Ohio State's defense would move the ball on Georgia all game, and they did, also, to me, it was like, all right, well, it's Georgia's defense. And you're trying to do it with Mitch Rossi, Xavier Johnson, Joe Royer. Like, I'm not – but Dallin Hayden. Mm-hmm. Just not that they're not capable. Not that they're not capable. But, man, you are asking a lot of guys who have not come close to being in that position before. Listen, Xavier Johnson caught a Notre Dame touchdown. I get that, right? Xavier Johnson's probably ready for the moment. But he's also – you know, we we sometimes say like, oh my gosh, this guy was only a recruit. This guy was only ranked 241 as a recruit. It's like, well, David Johnson was a walk-on. Doesn't mean he's not a good football player. But if you want to, we want to put little recruiting rankings over the skill players that Ohio State was putting on the field for the end there. Now, Emek Egbuka and Julian Fleming both would have like ones over them. There's a one, and like a six or whatever, but still. So, Stephen, I, I will say, I think that is great confidence for the fans to have that confidence. To me, in that moment, I certainly was thinking about, man, I think they're going to miss some of their guys here. That's why I didn't think they'd score a touchdown. I thought that what they had, just because, I mean, you're in the groove of it now. So, yes, recruiting rankings, all that stuff matters. But, I mean, David Johnson had been making plays in that game. Ameka Buka had, arri- had arrived himself. I thought Julian Fleming had a really good game as well. Um, now, some a lot of that stems from starting with Marvin Harrison. But once guys get into a rhythm, they get into a rhythm. Dallin Hayden ran it pretty well when they asked him to run it, especially late when they also, they really started running the ball. I thought at that point they had enough there that what they were doing combined with C.J. Stroud just being a dude, saying, get on my back and let's go down the field. I thought they could get to the 35. And I and to be honest with you, I don't – I wouldn't be shocked if that wasn't the conversation. It's like, yeah, we're going to take our shot, try to get a touchdown here. But if we get to the 35, that's money. Then we've done our job here. But, (laughs) I mean, if you add in all those extra pieces, you know, their best receiver, their second best receiver, their best running back, their second best running back, their best tight end, their second best tight end. If you add all these pieces back in, this whole, like, scenario probably doesn't – the way the game actually played out, this game – this scenario doesn't exist. I think Ohio State probably scores, like, 55. So this is not even a conversation. Tulane beat USC, so we probably should give up play calling. Um, (laughs) Because the defense – Like I said, is that the the comparison Ryan Day wants? You know what this means? It means Alex Grinch is going to get a raise by a million dollars, and he'll be there for another three years. I do wonder if Alex Grinch will get fired because this has been a thing. And like, I, I follow enough USC writers that it was like, they couldn't tackle. And then they got, they had a month off and Alex Grinch like was given interviews of like, it's not good enough, whatever. And then like they got to the bowl game and they couldn't tackle. And the Heisman winner who had no, 
I mean, he's not going pro, so I guess it would be a surprise for Caleb Williams to opt out. But, like, they kind of had their guys, and they couldn't beat Tulane because they couldn't stop Tulane because this defense is not good enough. So that's that's a conversation. Again, talk about, like, like where, where USC and Ohio State were at the end of the 12-game regular season and where those two programs are now, <laughs> right? It can flip quick. Talk about how you're feeling. Let's go to a survey. Let's see if I can get some USC tech subscribers to respond to a, a quick survey about USC. All right, Nathan, what's your opinion of Ohio State's last three offensive plays before the field goal try? Terrible calls. It cost Ohio State the game. Pretty bad, but I think the offensive injuries affected them. They didn't work, but I get most of the thinking. So the, the first one is like, no excuses, awful. The second one is like, man, I didn't like it, but just everything I was just saying about the guys they didn't have. And the third one is like, you know what? Even in the context, I understood what they were doing. It just didn't work. I don't have a problem with it. What do you think won, Nathan? Well, I think terrible calls definitely finished third or should have. The other two are, are not that far apart on the spectrum, right? So uh, I'm going to say I'm, it's almost a toss-up in my head. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go didn't work, but I get the thinking. Okay, so pretty bad, but so so the, the the pretty bad to me is like I didn't like it, I didn't think it was good, but I'm going to give them an excuse. Okay, because they had hurt guys. The other one to me is like I didn't even think they were bad. I yeah. thought they were fine, mm-hmm. right? So I'll go. I thought they were bad. Go ahead, Nathan. I'll go with that. that. I'll go with that third one. I thought they were bad, but I think the injuries affected it. One fifty four percent. Didn't work, but I get most of the thinking. 33%. Terrible calls. Cost Ohio State the game 13%. I will say, Nathan, I thought, again, with sort of the initial reaction, squeaky wheels, I thought terrible calls, they cost Ohio State the game, might get more than 13%. So, again, this was maybe sleeping on it a little bit, but that I thought was instructive. Yeah. Well, but it's really just the one-run call, right, that people – Really took issue well, with like I mean the- no I, I I think the call they had on they had a call on second and five that you know, I even said in the moment it was a little too cute for that situation when you know you need to like keep on every their yard you not got on the last point. not on the last three offensive plays we're just talking about the last, last three, three offensive plays were the run play to Hayden the slant to Xavier Johnson and then the the throw that CJ yeah. chucked in the stands because yeah, yeah we're there. just talking about the last three the, the, the first one okay I get if someone was like why are you running the ball at all. I'm I'm really not that far out on a, on 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 the edge on that. Uh, I get what they were trying to do; it just didn't work. The other two, they're throwing the ball; they're trying to get yards. Like I, I think it's really just the one play more than the three. I, I think the second answer very much describes it. Uh, the fact that that one describes a fan base who has had some time to sleep on it. Because I, I mean, kind of agree uh, they weren't good play calls, but I'm not really sure what else. It's a these are bad play calls. But what other play calls should they have called in that situation, given the personnel they had? And I think even the second – and listen, we, we just have not – you guys have watched it closer than we have because we're like frantic, end of the game, oh, my God, you're trying to write your story. I think the, the slant to Xavier Johnson, the initial read is like a, an inside, more of an even inside route to mm-hmm. Mecca Abuka that yeah. was covered. And so even the idea of like, why are you, no offense to Xavier Johnson, but why aren't you throwing to it to a Mecca there? And it's like, well, they tried to, and it was covered. And then the mm-hmm. second read is Xavier. So just imagine a world 
and Xavier Johnson, by the way, Marvin Harrison Jr. said during the week, Xavier Johnson is my favorite player. I am always skeptical of the walk-on story because it's like, I get it. Everybody loves the walk-on story. And I like it when walk-ons get scholarships. And I think it's great. And I respect what walk-ons do. But then if we're going to have a football conversation, let's have a football conversation. Let's not let the the incredible work that a walk-on puts in and deserves and earns a scholarship as one of the 85 guys that earns a scholarship. That is fantastic. And I'm taking nothing away from that. But then let's not let that bleed into, oh, I think this guy might have like 50 catches this year, which sometimes it can. And like, I don't like when that happens because let's talk about football. So I'm skeptical of like, I love the story. I respect the work, but now we're talking about football. What's it really going to mean for the football team? And I think there have been many times in my time covering Ohio State where there are people who get out over their skis on the football part of it. And it's like, okay, Xavier Johnson can play. Xavier Johnson is like the 19th best football player on this team. Like Xavier Johnson, I think if you lined him up and said, we're just making you a running back, I think he could be like a quite good Big Ten running back. Or if you lined up and said, we're just making you a slot receiver. I think he could be a very good big team. He is Serious an question. excellent football player. If you put him on any team in the Big Ten West right now, do you think he could be an all-Big Ten level player for that team in the Big Ten West? I, like I first think team he could start for a though. lot of people. Like like second or third team all-Big yeah, Ten. Yeah, like third team all-Big Ten. Yeah. Yeah, by just putting like up when, numbers, like if he just went to Purdue and yeah. and, and could he put up the type of numbers? Yards? Yes, uh, he's a possible. He's an excellent football player. Maybe I think that is, he's, he's, I think that's how we when we get into these situations with the walk-ons, ask that question. If the answer doesn't yeah. at least percolate in your mind, like you guys are at least thinking about it. If you can't do that, then shh, yes. with all the extra football well, stuff. Yeah. But, but we don't know that. Yeah, we don't know they can do it until. But like they do a, it. a prime yeah. example, like Sam Wiggles went to OU this past year and was almost a thousand yard guy. It's like, yes, he's really good, but that's his level. I think Xavier Johnson could go to Northwestern or a Purdue or Iowa and be. I think he could be a thousand yard receiver for them and be like a third team all Big Ten guy, which I think is quality. But to the point, Doug is I think is getting ready to make here when you're throwing that pass and the guy who's typically there is a first-team All-American, maybe the first guy taken off the board in next year's NFL draft, there's that's a drop-off. And we have to always keep that in or the back of yeah. our minds when we get excited when Xavier Johnson catches the ball and then spins off a guy into the end zone. It was great. Marvin does that every game. Yeah. And it's not about how good they are. It's like, are they going to get on the field for this team? That's yes. the issue because that's what affects the football for Ohio yes. State. Like we're affecting the football of this team that we're talking and, about. And third team all Big Ten at receiver is not getting you on the field here unless this situation specifically happens where you lose Jackson Smith, the Jig Band, Marvin Harrison Jr. It's getting on the field, but it's also like proving you can make plays too. Like you can't just be a body taking up space. And like yeah. the, the if you were mm-hmm. to rank like the biggest football moments for this team all year, still Xavier Johnson catching that touchdown pass and then immediately after that covering the kickoff and making the tackle like that is very high on the list for 2022 it's really very high on the list for like a decade like that is a back-to-back moment that I don't that a lot of players can't necessarily do 
great. And so my point in all this is like, not that Xavier Johnson is not a good football player. It's like, he's like breaking my expectation to me. He's the exception Mm -hmm. to the rule. Cause my, my assumption is like, I get it all, all credit, but like, Len, let's make sure when we talk football, but the point is you were saying, Steven is if in that moment, so the first read of Mecca is not there. You go to Xavier. If the first read is Marvin, it's not there. You go to Mecca. Like it's just, that's the whole point. That's why yeah. people are wound up about NIL. That's why we talk about recruiting. That's what, because in those moments, you want to be relying on extremely physically gifted, hardworking, talented players who can make exceptional plays against other exceptional players when it matters most. And Xavier Johnson didn't do anything wrong there. He didn't drop it, right? The guy made a play. Mm-hmm. He did nothing wrong. But would, would a five-star have been able to make an exceptional play? Right. And and you just had a lot of spots on the on that last drive where you went from an exceptional, rare talent mm-hmm. to a very good football player. Well, like the last drive in a playoff game against the undefeated defending national champs, that's really not very good football player time. That is mm-hmm. exceptional, extraordinary. How did he do that player time? And Ohio State in that moment on that drive did not have as many of those guys on the field as they normally do. And that made it more difficult. And I think it affected the play calling and it just made Georgia have a better chance to slow them down a little bit. That's all. It's not, it's not anybody's fault, but I think it's a reality. And I think we just have to keep that with us as we continue to analyze how Ohio state fell short here. Nathan, let's get to the field goal. What's your view on the field goal? It's a 50-yarder indoors. You have to make that, and I'm mad. He should have made it, but it was pretty long. Or it's a tough ask from that distance and in that situation, and I figured he might miss it. This is a 50-yarder. He's never made a 50-yarder. Nathan, what do you think won? I think tough ask should have won, and especially for anyone who knows the context of him having never made a 50-yarder. But anybody who just watches college football and sees how inconsistent college kickers are from even a shorter distance than that. Um, as much as Ruggles has been super reliable, that was a tough one. That was going to be a tough one. Steven, what do you think won? I agree with that tough ask should have won. I don't know if you can ever completely get to that point as a fan. There's always got to be a part of you that's going to be like, man, he should have made it because, you know, competitive excellence, all that stuff. So I think should have made it, but it, it but while acknowledging that it's pretty long, might have edged it out. So I will say 11%, you have to make that and I'm mad, which I think is, that is like, because it can feel like, again, this is why we do this. This is why this focus group of texters is so valuable to us. Because I think if you went on Twitter, it just went by Twitter, it could feel like, I don't know, 80%, I'm mad. You should have made it. You blew it. I'm mad. 11%. It's just, it's not where most fans are. Should have made it, but it was pretty long. 42%. Tough ask. I figured he might miss it. 47%. So like half the people like, man, I didn't even think that was doable. Right. And then most of the rest of the people being like, yeah, I mean, he could have, but it, you know, it was long. So I I just think that matters. And Nathan, I don't know if you want to get into it just a little bit. Here's the thing I'll just say before this. We criticize people for on their jobs. Like, all the time is practically the basis of what we do. It's what's it's what being a sports fan and a sports analyst is. It's like they go out there and they do it. And then we say, eh, I don't know. Was that right? 
So we get it. So if people criticize us for doing our jobs, and then and, and again, it's like, do do we know as much about their jobs as they do? No, because that's what they do. They know how to do it, but we still criticize. So if people criticize us for our jobs and maybe they don't know as much about how we do our job, it's like, well, I don't know. Turnabout's fair play, right? Like that's that's how that's the world we live in. So like we're not mad about it, but you did have not that you had an exchange, but there was an exchange on social media sort of about the coverage of the missed field goal that I think is at least worth touching on. Yeah, well, I'd call it an exchange. It wasn't a heated exchange, but it was. No. It started Cam Johnston, former Ohio State punter, made a comment. I, he may have been subtweeting me because I did write a piece about the field goal, but I wasn't writing a piece from a standpoint of kicking expertise. In fact, it was actually the opposite. And But wrote a piece saying, oh, there's certain... I can't remember the exact quote. I can find it. But like, it's funny how there's all, all these journalists are suddenly kicking experts, something along those lines. Uh, and I responded to him and said, I can't speak for all these. Well, other- and then, and Jesse Mirko responds that was, to that comment with like, yeah, but that, no, that, well, my comment, my response came next, which was, um, I can't speak for everybody else. Um, I can't, I don't know which journalists you're talking about, but there were multiple journalists who went to the people in the kicking operation, which is what they call it, the kicker, the holder. We didn't talk to Mason Arnold, but I went up to Jesse Mirko. I went up to Noah Ruggles. I gave them the opportunity. I said, not trying to be insensitive, but can you explain from your perspective what took place on that? Both of them declined to talk. Uh, And the first they said, maybe come back later. Um, You know, we're getting dressed. I said, okay. I came back later. They (laughs) still said they didn't want to talk, which is, it's their prerogative. They don't. They don't have to talk. They're not head coaches. They're not NFL quarterbacks. They're not like contractually required to talk. So then Jesse Mirko said the thing. Just a tip for the future. Maybe give the guy a day or even just fifteen minutes to shower and put some clothes on before walking up to his locker and asking him what just happened. And I'm not gonna get into the too far into the woods on this, but that's not an accurate portrayal of what happened. There's a lot. There is a cooling down period before we're allowed in the locker room. Beyond that, there was even a delay because they were denying us access to the locker room because there was a miscommunication. So. Quite a bit of time passed. I talked to them in the moment, said they asked, well, not right now, maybe later. I came back later. They still said they didn't want to talk. And that's fine. But my this all dragged back to the beginning where, where, where uh, I was just trying. And I think that the, the, the root of all this is um, I don't know how well these players are prepared for the open locker room situation. There's a lot of times yeah. after a game where you're handpicked, they bring in who they want us to talk to. Uh, there, there's some exchange there, but maybe if a guy misses a field goal at the end of a game and Ohio State has a choice whether he is in front of a reporter at all, they they don't make him available. Uh, in But in the postseason, starting with the Big Ten Championship game, it's open locker rooms. I don't know how well the players are prepared for that. I don't know if they're told, hey, just so you guys know, whether you win by 80 or you lose on a last-second field goal, these guys are coming in. They're going to ask you questions about it. There are definitely some players who, who made it very known after the game that they did not want to answer the first question. Again, it's their prerogative. But what Cam Johnston seemed to be kind of getting at was there wasn't enough real expertise being put out there as to a perspective on what really happens in these situations. And my point was, we were trying to provide it. We're the vessel to provide it. So not insensitive to the emotion, but help us provide it. That was kind of the only point I was trying to make. Yeah, no, I was commenting on the Jesse Mirko comment after the initial Cam Johnson, which was a bunch of clowns. Oh, I didn't see that. I don't know if you missed that. No, yeah, I missed that. Clowns. So again, which is fine, but it's like it's just a hard thing. It's just but I, I, it's a very yeah. difficult situation. It, but that's we, the first. What, and, but to hear how you know, it actually played out, 
that's a frustrating thing sometimes to have to deal with when the chance to provide the expertise was presented to you. Yeah. No, well, nobody cares if we're frustrated and, and that we're, it's fine yeah. if we're frustrated, but we're, just right, the point right. of like in the moment, that's what we're trying to do is like we, you want to, because it's not like people aren't going to talk and write about the missed field goal. Like obviously exactly. it's going to be discussed. Exactly. We are the people who, who we're like the only people. Now you can go on Twitter. They do have all these athletes now have their own opportunity to talk on their own. They don't need the media as, as a interpreter of that. Um, but in the moment, it's like if you like w- the discussion is going to happen. So we would like to give you an opportunity to participate exactly. in the discussion of the thing that you actually did. We're just out here watching. You're as you know, CJ Stroud said, man in the arena a million times. You're the man in the arena putting it on the line. We get that. And now we're going to talk about it, but we would just like you to be involved in that. So it's fine. But if people I just wanted to talk about it, because if people see that exchange on Twitter, like we're not mad at anybody. No. But we we are just trying to give, and we are not insensitive to that. And it's the structure of the system of when you give the open locker room, you give it to people who are in various stages of undress in a very somewhat weird. short window after a very difficult part of their lives. But it's kind of how it is. And if you wanted to make it that it's an hour after the game and it's you stand outside as guys walk out, but then guys know that reporters are waiting there and maybe there is some expectation of like stop and talk to them after you're dressed and after you're cooled down. Maybe we can change the structure and it is different for college athletes and it is for pro athletes, but that was a public exchange. I wanted to talk about, it. I want to make it clear. It's like, we're not above reproach, but like, as you were saying, Nathan, like we're just trying to explain like why we are asking in that moment. Yeah, and like that's the best that anybody could do was what you and and I guess some other reporters tried to do was ask, give space, come back and ask again when they did not want to talk, which is fine and which is in their their right. Then you wind up writing the story without their expertise, and that's just there's nothing else we could have done. And I heard later another reporter told me that he first approached them, uh, got a similar response. He asked an Ohio State um, um, spokesperson. If he would approach them about talking, they still decline to talk. So, again, there's different ways. There are intermediaries there that you can go through. I just – and if anybody reads what I wrote, it was my Nathan Baird's observations thing for Monday morning. When you read the, what I wrote, it was very much kind of coming from their perspective to be like, I know this is an intrusion. I know what the emotions are. I know this is a – you don't want to talk to me. But we're it, – it's not about playing the blame game. It's literally just about trying to explain this better to people because, let's face it, the knee-jerk reactions are going to happen anyway. The blame game, they are going to play the blame game, the nameless, faceless trolls, and they're going to be pretty disgusting about it in some cases. And I guess from that perspective, I almost don't, if, if no Ruggles and Jesse Murko say, well, forget you guys, uh, I don't care who, who I'm explaining this to. I suppose I understand that. But that's going to happen anyway. This is your, it's an opportunity to just sort of, um, you know, find two sentences that can help us explain it. Okay, was worth talking about because, as we said, we want to be like your guide through the universe, and we don't want you to stumble across something on Twitter and be like, "Oh my God, why are they?" Co-? It's like it's not confrontational. It's just you know everybody play on their roles in this situation the best that we can. Okay, I asked, did this game affect your opinion of C.J. Stroud, Ryan Day, and Jim Knowles? I asked separate questions for all three of them, and the choices for all three were: my opinion went up, my opinion stayed the same, my opinion went down. So let's stay with. 
CJ Stroud and Ryan Day first. And I won't make a guess here because we're getting a little long uh, Buckeye talk. Stephen, opinion went up. For CJ Stroud, 84% of the respondents said their opinion of CJ Stroud went up. 16% said it stayed the same. Ryan Day, the opinion went up 60%, stayed the same 37%, went down 3%. So they are individual people. We don't have to talk about them together, but in many, many ways, they are linked. It goes back to, I think, what we talked about off the top, Stephen. This was a game, even in defeat, that I think there were positives for the Ohio State program, even in defeat. It's very clear there were positives, at least for the perception of how people view C.J. Stroud and Ryan Day. I think in all the other losses C.J. Stroud has had, whether they were fair or not, fans felt like there were things he could have done more of, mainly the running thing. But there was always something where it's like, if you do this a little bit more, then maybe this isn't the outcome. This is the one game where that's not true. He literally shot all the bullets through the gun and the holster. And he carried a team that was very much missing all of its parts that were necessary to win a game like this. And he lost it by one. He even put them as close as he could to try to win the game. They still had a chance to win the game when they put that kicking unit out there. So uh, you said 84 and 16%, which means basically 0% said it went down. That's the most impressive thing there than more than it is the up or the same. It's that like no one walked away from this game still feeling like, oh, he didn't do this enough because that's always been the thing. I can't even imagine how you would vote that your opinion went down unless you're just someone who's yeah. an absolutist on quarterbacks that, well, no matter how bad the rest of the team plays, you still have to yeah. elevate it to a win at the end of the day, which I think is a, a hysterical perspective. Um, standard to try to set it's, it's an unrealistic thing but because even with day it's like i mean we just talked about it his went down are probably people who are thinking more about those last three plays than the other 72 that they ran when he was you know kicking <laughs> kicking george's butt for you know 45 minutes there um the, the the day one is interesting i think his i mean he still has lost to michigan and they lost in the playoff and there's still some People maybe still have their eye on him a little bit more heading into this offseason and how he handles some things. So that will make sense as well. Okay, let's do, and Nathan, if you, let's go to Jim Knowles, Nathan, unless you have anything huge you want to add to Stroud Day. Just on day, I would, I could still see it dropping a little bit in people's esteem on day just because you've you've had time to fix the defense with recruiting that you're in charge of you had time to fix defense with the coordinator that you got to hire and you didn't have catastrophic injuries on that side of the ball and it was still such a failure in, in the moment and you're up by 14 and, and that some of that still reflects back on him but it'll reflect more on Knowles so well, I might as well move on to that I, I still there was a texture and I saw your text that I think brought up an interesting point, basically saying it's the playoff. It's a high scoring game. This is how it goes. I think Knowles did fine, but Ohio state punted too much, settled for field goals at the end, did not continue scoring touchdowns. TCU Michigan was like a touchdown fest. It goes on the offense to keep scoring more. And that's the failure. It's not the defensive failure, which is not the discussion. We're going to have a an hour and 42 minutes into this podcast. But it's a discussion that's worth having later, Nathan. I was going to say, it, it, it's a little bit reminiscent to me to some of the conversations you were having about Michigan relative to Ohio State when I started on this beat about how, yeah, they're giving up a lot of points to Ohio State. But the problem is their offense isn't – they're not pushing the, 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 
the the thing on that side of the ball. Like you've got to go out and get the athletes and the quarterback that can keep up with Ohio State. So Jim Knowles, did it go up? Did it go down? Did it stay the same? 48%, my opinion of Knowles, went down. 46% stayed the same. 6%, my opinion, went up. Nathan, what do you think of that? I'm surprised that went down isn't higher, but it may be an indication that for those 46%, it had already started to become a not unfavorable, but less impressed just because of the way things went against Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's like it was already kind of low. I don't like I was already oh. disappointed after Michigan. I continued to stay disappointed, so I voted I stayed the same. And I do, you know, there's only so much nuance you want to put on the homework platter of people who are paying you to be part of this. Oh, uh, let's get inside. I have a a, a a question and then seven follow-ups about that question. It shouldn't be homework. So I didn't go too far, but I did think that was interesting. These last ones are more about the overall program, and I'll run through them all first, and then we'll discuss them. How close do you believe Ohio State is to being a championship team that can beat Michigan, beat the best teams in the country, and win a national title soon? I will just tell you what the answers were. 53% leading the way. The Buckeyes are close, but they need to fix a few things with coaching and talent. So that of the four answers, that was like the second most positive answer, I would say. The Buckeyes are there and it will happen was 22%, which is the most positive answer, which is basically like, keep doing what you're doing. I like where you are. It's going to happen, which is, I thought like a quarter of the people being like that, considering they lost their last two games was actually pretty good. The Buckeyes are there for the moment, but I'm worried they'll slide back with NIL and recruiting got 19%, which Mm. is sort of like, I like where you are, but I'm not worried about the now I'm worried about the future which was the December 21st NIL. That's not a Michigan question. That's a all the things happening around it question. And this did surprise me a little bit. I gave this other option. The Buckeyes are there nationally, but they still have a major Michigan problem, which is sort of like maybe you otherwise would vote like it will happen. But like, I'm like, I'm not worried about Georgia. And like, I'm not even that worried about recruiting. I'm worried about can they beat Michigan, which frankly, after the Michigan game is kind of what everybody was talking about. So I felt like I had to give because I don't think I keep talking about this two these two paths analogy. I don't think that's the same thing. I think it is very possible to feel like line up Ohio State against Georgia tomorrow and next year and the year after that. I, line up Bama, line up USC, mm-hmm. line up anybody, and I I am right there. But I'm not so sure about this rivalry thing. I think that is a a very reasonable opinion. Yeah, and I thought that answer might be very popular. It got six percent, Stephen. So like you're nodding like like I was a little surprised by that that it only got like, like everything's good except for Michigan only got six percent. The main thing was we're we're pretty good overall. We just need to get a little better in some areas. I'm not surprised that one, but I thought maybe there'd be greater Michigan caveats here. I thought the Michigan problem thing when you first sent out this text and I got it. I was looking at it, it's like oh that Michigan one's gonna win, and I'm thinking that probably needs to be a pod we do. And it's because after watching these two playoff games, I was joking with somebody on the sideline when we were watching it up on the Oracle saying, that thing is so cool. And we were you know, watching warmups and stuff. And I went, so Michigan is completely built to beat Ohio State and Ohio State is completely built to beat playoff teams. That's why it looks like Michigan can't keep up with TCU right now. And Ohio State's probably going to make this a competition tonight against Georgia. But I, I, I think this is an interesting thing here where Ohio, because of how Michigan has set up its team to basically attack all of Ohio State's flaws right now, 
we, we've had this conversation in the past of would you be okay with losing to Michigan in a year, but also winning a national championship in the same year? We were very close to maybe getting that this year. And until some things get fixed for Ohio State, I think we could live here where Ohio State and Michigan are very, very good. They might be three and five or two and three, especially when we get to a 12 team playoff world. But Michigan keeps building rosters that attack Ohio State specifically. Meanwhile, Ohio State has rosters that compete on the playoff level. So Michigan wins the game, but Ohio State wins the trophy. And it's like, what do you do with that? I think that is the encapsulation of our primary discussion here. Yes. Right? It's a version, it's what Kings of the North is, it's what our rivalry discussion is, it's what our sending Ohio State end out of the world, Nathan, like this is, and it like all came to fruition. Like it it we we've been staring it in the face and then it punched us in the face again, I think, in this in this season. Well, it's almost not what Kings of the North is, though, because uh Pretty soon, it's almost like Kings of the North has been important because not the the whole world hasn't been explored, but they're about to expand the playoffs, and we're about to find out there's a whole much more world out there, and and winning the North isn't going to matter as much as it well, once true. did. Mm-hmm. So, but you don't have to be the King of the North, right? Yeah, it, and and you almost didn't have to be this year. I mean, listen, like it's I would if I were answering if I were a fan answering this, I would have answered the Buckeyes are there, and it will happen. I mean, literally, if if they if no Ruggles. Norwell was a few minutes before he missed the 50-yarder, kicked one from 48 that Pat McAfee caught behind the crossbar, I think would have Mm -hmm. cleared from 50. Would have been close, but it probably would have cleared from 50. And if Ohio State makes one more pass completion on that, of those those last two pass completions, and now they get a few more yards and he kicks that, or if Lathan Ransom doesn't fall down, I mean, they are razor thin margins here as to whether or not they're we're getting ready to fly to Los Angeles and cover a game that they're going to be favored in by how what would they be favored by against TCU 10 points uh, 11 10 like 10. like so i mean 10 or 11. yeah so it's it, they're right they're right there i know they're not beating michigan but as far as having the things that they need to win a national championship and frankly having the things that when paired with their offense can win the defense can still win a national championship. It's just that the margin for error with where the defense is right now was still so small and it, it ultimately cost them. All right, let's run through the last two real quick. Which more closely describes your season as an Ohio State football fan? It was mostly fun with a huge bump of anger and sadness with the Michigan loss, but it came back around with the playoff. That was 50%. That won. Like I had a good time. I freaked out a little bit for the second straight rivalry loss, but then I got it back and I, and I had a good time again. It was an equal mix of joy and misery, which is the life of a fan. Like the whole time you have a knot in your stomach and you're excited, but you're also miserable. Like all of that, all at once, 24%. It was a lot of fun with some disappointment at the end, but I loved it. Like I just loved being a fan of this team. I get it. They didn't win every game, but holy moly, how exciting. 14%. It was mostly frustrating and heartbreaking with some fun sprinkled in, 12%. So to me, those are like the four options, like mostly fun, some misery, mostly misery, some fun, an equal mix of misery and fun, or fun, Michigan misery, fun again. So I'm not surprised that fun, Michigan misery, fun again, one. I would invite the 12% of the people who said it was mostly frustrating and heartbreaking with some fun sprinkled in. We will have an Ohio State Buckeye Talk therapy session for you because I think there is a way that we can help you have more fun with this crazy season. 
right? So I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're a bad fan, but I would hope that everybody's scale on the frustration fund scale, man, there's a lot of people going three and nine. I would hope your fun frustration scale is at least 51% fun. I would hope. And we'll try to help you get there if you're not there. We'll help you do that this offseason. Last thing. I woke up on the first day of 2023 feeling disappointed but hopeful, 60%. That was actually like the most positive one, right? Like, of course you're disappointed your team lost. But you know what? Hey, life goes on. Let's go get them next year, 60% devastated and sad. And again, I I think in situations like this for fans, huge difference to me between sad and mad. Like I'm so sad they lost. I can't get over it. I get it. I get it. Angry and ticked off. Cause like you're sad with your team, you're mad at your team. And so I think for a fan, it's, Mm. it's a little healthier to be sad with your team than mad at your team, mad, like angry and ticked off. And maybe you're mad at the officials. Maybe you're mad at, that you had to go play in Georgia when and the crowd was imbalanced or whatever. Like you, you don't only have to be mad at your team, but I think most of the people who are mad are maybe mad at your team. Only eight percent, and then hungover got nine percent. So, Aww. so I, I was kind of, I felt good, Nathan. That again, the the mad part of it was not that high because again, the mad people go to Twitter. The sad people maybe don't go to Twitter as much, right? The mad people are banging it out. Oh my god, yeah. I can't believe this happened. I'm so. You know, I don't know that you, you don't, you don't flip your computer open and like, I, I can't believe my team lost. Let me tweet about it. Like you just kind of want to stay to yourself or like talk to your friends and your family about it. So in the end, um, I think there can, there can be a perception which puts people on edge, puts players on edge, puts the families of players on edge. We have talked about this. We talked about it with the good work you guys did, you know, on the, on the, the story with the families about the Michigan loss last year. It's that perception, I think, that nothing's good enough, that fans get mad at you when you lose, that kind of thing. You know, Cam Johnston is leaping to the defense. Hey, you miss a field goal. And, and like, it's not, it's not where the vast majority of people are, Nathan. They're not. They're not screaming. They're not furious. They're disappointed and a little frustrated and a little upset. But I think in the end, and I think the mad scale, I think the mad – as Stephen was saying, last month, they're a little rough, right? Especially the week after Michigan. I think that's because the mad started to outweigh the sad a little bit. And you're both, but man, you were getting mad. And mad is like, there's a problem here. This mm-hmm. needs fixed. Fire everybody. You don't fire somebody because you're sad. You fire somebody because you're mad. I'm sorry. Ryan Day needs to go. That's not what people said. Ryan Day needs to go. Right? That's what that is. That's where we were. Like, there were people, right? For our people. And if you're listening to this, you're our people. For our people, Nathan, I feel very good about how this season ended. Not that it was as good as it could be, but I think it helped a lot of people get to a better place. And I think that's a healthier way to start 2023. And I don't mean to always sound like a therapist, but I feel like the connection that we have to fans and we have a connection in particular to a group of people who subscribe to the text because that's a two-way communication. This podcast is a one-way communication, but we still have a communicate. We have a community with our Buckeye Talk listeners. If you're listening to this, even if you're not a text subscriber, we feel you, right? We have people come up and say hello to us. We feel you. 
I have become much more vested, Nathan, and much more interested, and perhaps annoyingly so, in the health and welfare of fans in this day and age. I don't want fans to love sports and then the result be that it makes them miserable. There's enough things in life to make you miserable. Sports should not make you miserable. Sports should make you feel alive. Sports should make you bond with your friends and family. Sports should make you feel like you got a lightning bolt struck on you, right? Like all those, the wonderful excitement. What excites people more than something great happening in sports? And you should then also feel that when you fall just short. You should feel that. But it shouldn't, I hope, I hope, and I don't want to say shouldn't. My hope is it doesn't linger too long. It doesn't affect the rest of your life. It doesn't make you angry at the people that you want to love, right? Whether that's the people in your house or the people on the field who are playing in the jersey that you love. And so, again, it's, I like the reminder when it's like, it's okay. We get you, you're disappointed. Of course you are. But there's not people aren't as mad as I think you would be led to believe by Twitter. Mostly Twitter's fault. Because sometimes I think on Twitter, I can feel like the whole world's mad about everything. But especially after a sports loss. So it's why I love the texts. And I don't mean to be a preacher about this stuff. But... The whole point is enjoyment. And so I feel good. I feel much better. I was worried about Ohio State fans after the Michigan loss. And that's not to say that there aren't things this program needs to do better. But I was worried about where two, where I thought a lot of people were. And I feel much better about that, Nathan, right now. Listen, it is complicated. Because I think even if you look at it and say, well, Georgia may be about to go win back-to-back national championships they are as good as it gets in all of college football right now and ohio state proved it is right there it is toe to toe with that that's not a that's not a field goal pun it's like right there on the same plane as georgia it's right there it's right there now as a fan even if you understand that i understand i get when you are like okay but can we win that now can like we be the team that wins? Like Georgia won, and now we're right there with them, so let's win. Like when, when does Ohio State get to win that game? I totally understand that. I hope it just gives you an appreciation, a further appreciation for how astonishingly hard it is to do this and how thin the margins are. And I, I think it should also, the way things went this weekend, should still give you, uh, this past weekend, give you some encouragement for what is accomplishable even a year from now, like where could this team be still just a year from now? There isn't any reason to think that a, a, a crater is about to open up here. Ohio state is in a good place. It's in a better place after that game than it was a month earlier. And I, I agree. I, I, I thought maybe there'd be a little bit more anger just because of, you know, uh, Marvin Harrison jr. Getting knocked out of the game and, and some things like that, that you weren't even necessarily angry at your team or the officials. You might just be angry at like, you're shaking your fist at the gods or whatever, the football gods. Um, but I, I think angry man yells that angry old man yells that cloud. Yes. Uh, so I, 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 I am encouraged too that it's, I think there's a proper mourning period. I think fans are in that mourning period. There's a piece of it that you carry with you forever. Cause you're, you know, how close you were and you love this team, but process that and move forward to the next thing because Ohio State should be right there challenging again to be back in the playoff next year. Angry man yells at circular video board at top of Dome Stadium. Um, Steven, what's your takeaway for how people are feeling heading into this offseason? I think a lot of people in this fan base, just because of how the last 30 days had gone, were looking for a reason to have hope. And Ohio State gave them one. And as a result, at least 
for the, our, our core audience, these texters, they are responding as if they got hope. Had they not gotten that hope, it maybe still would have been, you know, fire Ryan Day, CJ Stroud, most disappointing quarterback of the past two decades, fire Jim Knowles, fire Gene Smith. Rah, 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 rah. It would have been all that stuff. But you lost by one point to the team who's probably about to win a back-to-back national title, unless TCU has some more surprises up its sleeve here. And you had a chance to win the game. At bare minimum, I think most fans just wanted to see Ohio State compete against Georgia, even if they didn't think they were going to win. They did a lot more than just compete, so you have reasons to be positive. And when you have that, then you get positive positive feedback like what we just got. All right. Doesn't mean they shouldn't have won. They probably should have won. They probably should have won, right there. <laughs> they had it right there, and they didn't. And then they didn't get it done. And it doesn't like absolve anybody from anything. Uh, and there's certainly ways where this very good football program can get better. So we'll continue to talk about that, continue to write about that, continue to text about that. We invite you to join us at cleveland.com/slash/osu. The text at six one four three five zero three three one five. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to Buckeye Talk uh, wherever you can find it. College Football Survivor Show. Shahan and I will be talking about Georgia and TCU. On that show this week, I'd invite you to try that. We will do an offensive and a defensive breakdown on two separate pods later this week. We'll drop a rants pod later this week. That's the plan for now. And then we'll all take a breath and reset a little bit. But for now, for Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.